cutting my teeth on that definitely set my mindset up to have an attention to detail that still needs to apply at the big level. Just because there's commas and zeros doesn't mean that every little line item doesn't have a big amount of risk attributable to it. You are listening to the Property Developer Podcast, your home for tips, ideas, and inspiration to help take your developing to the next level. Now, here's your host, Justin Getty. Hello, and welcome to episode 72 of the show. Thanks for joining me. I trust you are well. I'm doing fine. Although, as I record this, Melbourne has started its second lockdown, although this one is a stage four lockdown to prevent the spread of COVID-19. And that means many businesses are closed and movement is severely restricted. We've even got a curfew in Melbourne from 8pm till 5am. So the kids are home from school and we don't get to go out that much. This certainly has been a strange year and I hope you are managing to negotiate it as best you can. Fortunately, it looks like the residential construction sector will still be able to operate, although at much lower levels, which means work should continue on my site, but perhaps at a slower rate. I'm still waiting to find out exactly what it means from the builder. Otherwise, we had been making reasonable progress on site with earthworks underway to prepare the levels for the drains and foundations. I posted a video update on Facebook and Insta if you want to check out how things are progressing. We have been having some issues with wet soil due to winter weather and that has slowed things down a little, but we will work through that. Not much to report on my other project as we continue to work through the construction documentation. Don't forget that if you are interested in learning how to develop, we have the mentoring program that is available to guide you through the development process and help you develop safely and profitably. Email me, justin at propertydeveloperpodcast.com if you want to find out more. And thanks to the people that have sent me some amazing emails over the past few weeks thanking me for producing the show. I'm very grateful for your support and I really appreciate you taking the time to let me know. And thank you for listening in. Without you, there would be no point to the podcast. But we've still got so much ground to cover with the show, so keep listening as we learn the lessons from people across the industry. Okay, on to today's guest, James Paver from Avenor. Avenor is an Australian property development, investment and services firm with expertise in the initiation and delivery of commercial, residential and major mixed-use projects across the country. James and his team have worked on a range of deals, large and small, so he brings insight into what makes a successful project, along with the lessons learned from getting projects started and completed. In this conversation, we cover the importance of community engagement, what to do when things don't go to plan, and what large and small projects have in common. Keep an ear out for what James thinks smaller projects can learn from larger ones. I think you will enjoy this conversation and I started off by asking James what food he would eat until he was sick and it's one of my favourites too. Burritos, and I do. <laughs> yeah, love it, love it. Any I, particular uh, kind of burrito? Gets me every, gets me every time. You got a go-to burrito? Uh, I, you know what, I actually like making my own. I, uh, I've, uh, you know, just get everything from Woolies or and you know whip it together and then end up going back for more going back to the stove and you know loading up a couple more <laughs> yeah where did that where did that taste come from oh, i don't know actually as a kid i suppose when you um we used to you know do it at home and then uh, you'd you'd uh 
you'd make make one too many for yourself and then two too many for yourself and then keep going back. Yeah, yeah, they're pretty pretty tasty. I was in San Francisco a few years ago and a friend of mine who lives there took me to this famous place in the city where they do unbelievable burritos and they're they're so filling, they're crazy. They fill them up with yeah. black beans and all sorts yeah, of stuff. Yeah, I love it. Cheese, love it. yeah, you're super full after you've had a good burrito. Yeah, absolutely. Well, James, we're here as usual to talk about developing and um, you've got an interesting story to share about uh, your journey into property developing. You're kind of doing it at a, at a bigger level or a higher level than um, than some others might be, but give us a bit of a, um, a background of yourself and, and how you got to where you are today. Yeah, sure. Sure. Well, I'm um, not sure how I sort of made the decision early on to rip into property itself, but I made a decision to go to uni, go to UTS and do property economics. And um, and and through that, uh, while I was there, I, I landed a, a job with John Boyd delivering, um, uh, just in the early days, helping helping him do 161 Castle Ray Street, which was a commercial tower in, in Sydney. And and that sort of set me off on this path of of, of development and major project development in the back of my mind but that was just a uni a bit of a side thing and and then uh, my first proper job was in an investec bank in the in the team that um was uh, structured real estate finance so funding high net worth developers and investors and um i think through that that gave me a taste of almost every asset class and every you know major Australian market, and through that I got a taste of of what it's like to be out there investing and developing as a private uh, individual. And I think through that that really kicked me off in in the right direction and gave me a taste of where I wanted to head. And sorry to interrupt you, but what was it about that that sort of got you excited? What was what was the part of the deals or the analysis or that got your yeah, blood, blood going? I reckon deal structuring uh, and, and being able to see the, all the different ways that people make money out of property and their different approaches to property. And we had a bit of everything. Like there was clients who had a book of a billion dollars and some well-known names in, in the market. And then there were others who had started off as left school at 13 years old and become a panel beater and then and, and started investing in small things and then over a course of 15, 20 years built a $400 million book. And so there was a bit of a, a, a range of approaches which and, and different models that they would apply. So I sort of thought, well, if I can draw on the best bits of each of these different models and, and apply myself, then, then maybe I'll, I'll get lucky. <laughs> Yeah, so you were working for somebody else, seeing these yeah. big, big projects or high net worth individuals. Where did that well, lead to? Well, I, I always had a, had a feeling that I wanted to own my own firm in in some capacity, and I was thinking maybe I go the funds management route, or maybe I go the development route. No, I'm not art, and I said, oh, well, actually, I'll go and build the skill set in development as as the route that I take. I went to Latent Properties, which is a was a T one uh, development firm delivering residential and, and commercial developments across Australia. And then from there, I, uh, I built a skill set in institutional grade development and delivered the Vodafone Tower in North Sydney and ran bids for other various 
major projects. And then it was that as Leighton Properties started wrapping up, closing up that book after being taken over by a, a, a European firm. They, I, I grabbed a couple of the key staff from Leighton Properties and, and myself and Peter Clemisher set up Avenor off the back of the closure of Leighton Properties. So we, we grabbed a couple of them and then kicked off doing a similar sort of development model. Just before you go to Avenor, what do you reckon the key thing, key couple of things you learnt while you're at Leighton's about developing? I think definitely the team that you have is really important. Uh, the team that we were working with at Leighton was was the A team, and so we we really would bounce with each other and learn a lot. And so that's why when we we're setting up Avenor, we made sure Pete and I made sure that we grabbed a couple of the key key guys to keep that team going. So that's definitely one of them. Another one is hard work. The Some of the success that we had there was really a result of putting the hard yards. And so that set up a really good discipline that we could apply across the, the growth of Avenal when we eventually got going. And so you, it sounds like you were doing deals that had a lot of zeros involved with them and a few commas. <laughs> are, there, are there bigger deals... Um, and you might you might not have that much exposure to the smaller ones, but is there any difference to those sort of really big deals versus maybe putting together a lower end type arrangement uh, or structure? You know what the principle the, the principles are still the same, and so and I, I definitely have had exposure at the, of the smaller stuff, and even these days we do still operate in some of that smaller space and and the way that we are, and I'll, I suppose I'll, I'll get to that in a bit, but we. Uh, and when I was with Investec, it was there still were the smaller transactions, there still were the smaller developments. It wasn't all the big stuff, and that's where a lot of the book was. So cutting my teeth on that definitely set my mindset up to have an attention to detail that still needs to apply at the big level. Um, just because there's commas and zeros doesn't mean that every little line item doesn't have a big amount of risk attributable to it so you really got to apply the same mindset at the big end and then vice versa being able to apply a big picture thinking to small projects is still important if you get caught in the weeds um, then you can miss opportunities so I think there's some definitely some related principles. Okay and then so on to Avenor which is the firm that you that you set up give us a bit of a flavor about what that does or how you got started and what you focus on. Yeah, definitely. We we set it up in, in 2016 and that it came about, as I said, from the, the closure of Leighton and we said, oh, well, well, Leighton had a $7 billion book and it was successful and so, well, let's keep going with that model. And the path that we elected to take was starting off in advisory services and management services for major projects and then building that into direct investment and development and then moving that into investment partnerships. And so that's where a big part of our, our future growth will come from and is coming from. And so and now we, we, we operate across all of those different business units. Well, can you give me a bit of a, a nuts and bolts kind of uh, description about what each of those sections actually does day to day on the ground? Yeah, sure, sure. So maybe going, going into the advisory uh, services component of it. One of the first projects, for example, we helped Macquarie Bank, Bank in their early unsolicited proposal process with the state government for the Martin Place metro station. So they had a, a feasibility and a model and they 
I said, here's, here's um, what our proposal looks like. And it was making a particular amount of money and had a particular strategy. And then Pete and I and our team came in and managed all of the design consultants and cost planning and programming and feasibility process and, and, and the like and, you know, compartmentalised sort of what way and then presented back a strategy on how they can improve that project so that it can move to the next phase of, of that USP. So there's an example of the advisor, and that's more a shorter-term thing, uh, but very pointed, success-based, success-driven sort of thing, versus the management services business, which is more around development and project management and advisory. So an example of that would be our Atlassian project at Central Station, which has been in the in the news a bit lately. So that's one where we we haven't already actually. So Pete and I have been pursuing the creation of a tech precinct for Sydney for about five or six years now. Even before we were doing stuff with Atlassian, and we we're doing it with our, ourselves and meeting with Deputy Premier when we were late and trying to put a consortium to. Glebe Island and this sort of thing. So we built up a bit of IP around tech precincts in Sydney and then one thing leads to another and we're, we're working with Atlassian in the early days, in early concept initiation around, okay, well, let's create a tech precinct at Central Station. And then we started wrapping our property development investment advisory component of that. How are we going to secure, how are we going to buy a site? What's the best strategy for planning? What's the best strategy for approaching the state government and transacting with uh, various parties into the management component of it, managing the design, managing the onboarding of a builder, managing planning and feasibilities and, and the like. And so it's a, a full development suite of services with structured consultant fee arrangements across different milestones um, and then all on behalf of, of a third-party client. Very good. So that's an example. Or and then up in up in Queensland, we were the development and project manager for Australian Unity. So they had a, a billion dollar hospital precinct called Hurston Quarter. So we assisted them with the securing and initiation of that project, and then onboarding of a builder, and then uh, the the project management of the delivery of that asset. So. That's an example of the management process. And then I think the final one, did you say direct investment into projects? Yeah, so, so through that, I mean, that's a really good way for us to have consistency and sustainability in our model. We're able to have an ongoing pool of, pool of clients um, that we can build and grow on and it's to a certain extent withstand market fluctuations a little bit better than having a balance sheet that's loaded up, for example. And so to then supplement that we have direct investment so where we will with third parties secure sites invest some of our own capital partner our capital with third parties and at the moment we haven't gone into the fund space maybe in the future we will but at the moment it's just in either partnerships or in syndicates and then we'll we'll manage a project on behalf of those third parties so in in north sydney we have a, a residential tower site on walker street so and our partner in that is Oxley Holdings out of Singapore, and we operating and, and delivering that entire project. And Oxley has a, a relatively passive role in that. And then we'll we're managing through the planning process at the moment, and and that's an example of one of the partnership arrangements. 
Yeah, so I think that North Sydney project um, has been an interesting one for you. Can you give us a bit of an idea of, of what it looks like, what you're what you're planning or trying to get across the line there? It's been a long journey, but it's quite fulfilling. We amalgamated 24 individual units. So those units were built 80 years ago and they're right in the middle of the North Sydney CBD, right on the on the edge of it next to the Moringa Freeway. And they... Um, stand out because they're surrounded by towers between 20, 22 storeys up to what's now 50 storeys up near the metro station and Denison Street. So it and these little apartments are three-storey walk-ups. So it was a prime site and when we were finishing off the Vodafone Tower in 2016, we thought, oh, well, that's definitely one we should pursue. So we found Oxley and brought them in as a part partner and, and started individually acquiring them and amalgamated 2,400 square metres of actual land area and then actually did uh, came to an arrangement with the next three properties as well. So the total area is now 4,000 square metres and now we've got a, a planning proposal. We got approved this year for a 30-storey tower and so that's been a long time coming but we uh, it's now full steam ahead and looking towards a uh, construction next year so um, which is which is exciting yeah and i think you had a few bumps and detours through the planning process as seems to be fairly normal these days can you give us a, an idea of of what you experienced and what you learned from that yeah absolutely well, i suppose we definitely took an optimistic approach to to planning Council up the road have a site which is the Ward Street Precinct car park and they're going through a process to rezone that and increase the height of that to over 60 storeys. And so we're, we're 150 metres from that, that site. And so our urban designers did the analysis said, oh, well, 45 storeys, a bit lower than that one and particular things with the urban planning and design and then that got rejected. So we went back to the drawing board and started engaging much more with the community so and then our approach was a much more focused on ground up so what is really important to the local community there's a strong village feel and a village character of, of North Sydney even though it's in the middle of one of Australia's biggest commercial centres and CBDs so striking the right balance of what the state government wants in terms of Hope creating homes near jobs and infrastructure and there's a new metro station going in around the corner and striking the balance of having that density but maintaining and prioritising what the community feedback is. So the next time round, we did a much better job at striking that balance and then as a result, we've, we've now got a 30-storey tower approved that actually caters to all of those stakeholders. And so what was it that was sort of the, the biggest fail or not failings but the weakest points of the you know, your first application and then what was different in the second that, that then gave you or got the support I suppose a lot of the feedback that we received in before producing the first one was that the future of north sydney is it's a cbd and there's a lot of development of commercial buildings going in there and we didn't place enough emphasis on view sharing and at the time, we didn't actually uh, have an arrangement with the, the adjoining owners. And so we didn't have such a large site to work with. So we had a taller building that blocked more views. And so in, in coming to an arrangement with the adjoining owners, having a larger site, shifting the tower a bit and then carving 
and then engaging with the community, engaging with the people in the buildings opposite and take, you know, working out exactly where we could put the built form so that, that the uh, view lines of neighbouring buildings could be maintained. We could both craft the built form that, that was sympathetic to that. That was one part of it. And then the other part of it was getting a bit of better understanding of council's priority of what they call special areas. There's a park just to the south of our site, which is not the best open space. It's next to the freeway. It's not the best open space, but nonetheless, it's a protected space. And so we we put in height controls that made sure that that small uh, green area was not to be overshadowed in winter and throughout the year. And I think that was a good move because it meant that all of a sudden we complied entirely with council's own principles for their own projects that they're delivering in Austin. So that was two lessons learned that had we applied a couple of those in the first time around, then we could, might have had a quick process, but you never know. Yeah. And so did you get community support on the second one or just uh, less uh, resistance and less objections? It's a tough one. We definitely have support of a lot of people. Unfortunately, when people are supportive, they're more often than not less vocal <laughs> than the people who, who aren't. But the first one was met with a lot of objection. This next time around, there's been a, a greater level of, of support. But as, as with any development, there's we're, we're going to need to continue to listening to the community, even through the delivery phase, to make sure that their needs are heard and, and that, that we cater to their feedback. And so did you say the height went from 45 to 30? Yeah, down to forty, uh, down to thirty. Yeah. Okay, so that's a pretty significant reduction in yield of a thirty odd percent change. Mm-hmm. How did, that must have been a bit of pill to swallow, and how how are you dealing with that? It it is it is. Because the amalgamation that we we did was quite rapid, and we we managed to acquire so the feasibility could withstand that sort of cut. Unfortunately, the the negative side of it is that. With the former proposal, there was a significant BPA, what they call it, a voluntary planning agreement, where because of the increase in the land value, it could substantiate a, a large contribution towards community infrastructure and towards community facilities So and also to affordable housing. So there was an allowance in, in the initial proposal for a particular amount of investment into into the community and the local infrastructure by cutting down the height and the, the development yield, it meant that it can't substantiate such an investment. But nonetheless, there's still going to be a, an equivalent contribution of, um, towards affordable housing um, of, of 5% of the stock. So that's definitely a, a benefit towards the community. There's also some public open space that can be, um, that was included in the original proposal and so a park would, would be dedicated and given that the, the proposal can't substantiate that anymore, there's still green space but it's, it needs to be reduced in size. And then in terms of community facilities, there was a, a community facility that was going to be built on the site but now that's going to be a contribution towards some of the initiatives that council had off our site. So the council had their own initiatives up in the pre, up in the Wall Street precinct that will will help them deliver uh, when, when the time is right. And how do you deal with the shifting uh, shifting sands, I guess, or 
you're, you're going through a project, you've got your end goal that you start out with, you know, your vision of your 45-unit tower, and then along the way things are changing. How do you deal with that? How do you deal with the uncertainty or the, the changes that are happening to the project? It's always approaching it with a sense of pragmatism. I think if people get too emotional or caught up, then, then it can hinder their ability to think clearly about the best way forward. And, for example, that the cut, losing 15 stories off a, off a project is a big one like that, but you need to take the path of least resistance in some instances and really listen to the feedback of the people who hold the gavel. <laughs> so, and so in this instance, it's, it's a matter of um, yeah, taking a pragmatic approach to that outcome. And so with that, so do you just go back to recut the feasibility make and determine whether it's still worth proceeding or how do you look at the, the returns and the feasibility? More often, more often than not, I, mean, I suppose not more often than not, every single project we do will always be, the decisions and investments we'll make will always have the appropriate risk catered for in the feasibility. And so in this instance, we knew uh, we had a particular level of confidence around a larger development aspiration, and then we had a and, and a particular return profile around that. We thought, okay, well, in the event that it goes one way after this amount of time, then here's what the cost of equity would have been in that period of time, and and can we withstand that if we have to make a decision to change cars in the future? Yes, we can. What's our risk margin on that? Okay, we can let's go ahead with that. And so in this instance, we always knew there was capacity for us to be able to pivot at the appropriate time. Then it's a matter of what your plan C and plan D is um, after that, which is where it gets a bit more sketchy, but we'll always have those in place. And like in, in the commercial development, like we're also in the commercial development world and for example, if you've got a lease exposure or a, a rent exposure on completion and you've got a particular risk margin that, that you, you've embedded in your feasibility, well, you plan it so that you can make sure you're offsetting some of that risk with some of the profits that, that are, are there to protect it. So I suppose similar with pre-sales in, a, in the development, making sure that you're covering off on your exposure with those pre-sales before you get going is another example. So in the planning world, similar sort of approach. And what sort of time period are we talking here going through planning? What do you yeah, want to talk about? It's been, long, it's been about three years since we, we kicked off initially, but that's actually not too bad compared to, that's actually pretty good compared to a lot of others we've seen. We've seen other developments go through very long dated planning processes to achieve quite marginal outcomes. Thankfully, I suppose the thing that substantiates our, at that time is the nature of the development aspiration and what we're actually trying to achieve. We're trying to create more than just throw up a building. We're actually trying to create a new piece of North Sydney skyline, get that public realm right, get the, the community integration right, and make sure you're integrating with the, the broader fabric of North Sydney which you need to make sure you get right because it's going to be right there on the room freeway in all the guideline photos for a long time. So you want to make sure you get it right. Planning in Melbourne is not getting any easier. What's what's your view on why it's difficult to get a planning approval you can give from your Sydney experience? I suppose it does. the pendulum does swing a little bit. I think we're, there's a bit of a swing back towards the need for 
economic growth. And with that comes a bit more weight behind planning progression. And I suppose that's the optimist in me (laughs) speaking. And so I suppose one of the things that we always prioritise is listening to what the real, true on the ground issues are of the people who are objecting planning so if whether it's council or state or whatever it may be more often than not there will be some form of solution to what the problem what what their issue is and so sometimes you have to think pretty laterally around what the problem what the solution is but uh that's definitely there's a lot of developers out there that just do not listen and i think that creates a a problem across the industry and that then people are just assuming that there won't be a level of engagement to move things forward. And then I suppose there's a there's a certain element of, of risk around, like Sydney, Sydney definitely has a bit of a not-in-my-backyard sort of approach to development, I suppose. In, for example, North Sydney, there's a, a real balance trying to be struck between residential and commercial development. And so in the North Sydney CBD, there is a real weight of support towards commercial development and a real weight of objection to residential development. And so similar to, I suppose, the the, the uh, markets themselves and different development sectors, if you strike the right chord with council or, or whatever it is around what they're trying to achieve in particular areas within their council area um, and then selling it into that the demand that they're actually, uh, whatever field they're actually demanding for, I think that's definitely a way to unlock that. Can you give us your view on where you see development going in Sydney over the next one to five years? I mean, at the moment, it's the market's it's softer, I think it's fair to say. And I know there's a lot of different sectors and a lot of different markets, but if you've got a kind of macro view about about Sydney, I guess. Can you share that with us? Uh, I suppose it's a bit hard to crystal ball at the moment given COVID-19 and the like, but we're relatively, thankfully at the moment, we're we're not too debt heavy. So we're in quite a good position to come out the other side of COVID, postured to start pursuing sites and, and unlocking a couple of projects. And we don't anticipate that being over the next 12 months. Uh, we see it maybe maybe being to the end of that 12-month period, and I think that's where our house view would, would see more opportunity coming to the fore. We're definitely just going to need to watch the debt markets and how they respond off the back of all of the repayment holidays that people have had, and so how that we haven't actually been able to see the true impact of COVID on a lot of the debt markets at the moment, I don't think. I think that'll be quite telling in, in what the, the next step for the residential market will be. And I think once we get a bit of a feel for that, that's when we'll be able to start gauging the trajectory of the development market, that's for sure. What about over the more medium term? I mean, obviously, as a developer, I'm optimistic for the <laughs> for the growth of the, the market. We're, we're definitely keen to posture ourselves for um, over the, the two to three-year period. And, and for Sydney particularly, there's still definitely an a issue at hand of undersupply. When we actually think about the fundamentals that have driven such an unaffordable, unaffordability problem in Sydney, it's driven by your supply and demand curve. And for years and years, the, the supply just hasn't been there. I think sort of stat that it was Sydney was meant to have a delivery of 36,000 dwellings 
per year for a, a period of the last 10 years and it hadn't been delivered at all until last year or, or something and then which means that there was pent up undersupply and now we're we're entering a period where that is going to go through a period of absolute undersupply there is no nothing but no new projects coming and so off the back of that there's a, a natural shift in the supply demand curve and and i think once people start getting back into their uh, into the groove of post-COVID economic growth. The demand side will start growing again. We'll see how we go with the banks. But I think at that point in time, there's going to be a real opportunity. I think the demand is going to, going to definitely pick up again, especially when they start opening up the borders. And I suppose that's one of the things that it always is usually one of the drivers of, of Sydney's raising market is whether or not the, the government is turning the tap on for population growth. And so uh, once the tap gets turned back on and countered by the and supplemented by the big undersupply, then we'll, we'll definitely see some development opportunities cropping up, that's for sure. Yeah, you kind of think that there will be another growth phase after we move through this for those reasons that you've just said. Undersupply, pent-up demand, immigration will kick off once again and then... You just think the the market will start to to grow into a into another growth cycle. Yeah, but exactly. Again, that might be the optimistic developer in me as well. I know, I know. It's 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 definitely one you want to you want to watch. There's a Warren Buffett quote. I think it's you only see who's swimming naked when the tide goes out. And I think that's been a bit the case recently, where you there's a lot of people who've been caught out through this, and so. Having a sustain, not jumping back in too early is, is going to be important. If people start just jumping back in and, and going for um, whatever, you know, that thinking they're picking the start, a 12-month difference in missing that start time can be make or break. So I think getting that time right is going to be fundamentally important. Yeah, I think over the medium to longer term, Australia's outlook is pretty good. We're, we're a growth country and we need to keep bringing people in and we need to keep growing to keep the economy chugging along. So all those people are going to need somewhere to live. Yeah, definitely, definitely. That's my view and I'm sticking to it. Yeah, that's it. (laughs) So, James, tell us, you've obviously been through a few challenges with the project and no doubt some of the other projects have had times where they've waxed and waned. What have you learnt about yourself along the way? Uh, persistence is something that we've needed to rely on, I suppose, in some of these projects um, in Walker Street and in, in a few of the others. There's a lot of stakeholders involved being able to continue to apply the amount, uh, the right amount of, of, of energy over a long period of time is, is definitely something that has, has come out across this time. Another thing I've learned is that having the right team around you is really important, whether it be internally the guys that I've brought, the team that I've brought on, or or externally the right consultants or, or your builder. Really getting the right individuals is is critical. And and that suppose what I've learned about myself is that I definitely perform really well when when that team is firing around me. It's definitely a, a good feeling. And what about something that surprised you in the last couple of years? Definitely the size of the project we've, been, we've managed to pull together in a, in a short period of time. We wouldn't have wouldn't have uh, anticipated being on a on a 
landmark commercial tower and a landmark resi tower in the space of a couple of years. But I suppose we'll always aspire to, to do that. But um, we're, I think yeah, we're surprised we're on that trajectory um, so soon. And I wanted to ask about the name of the business, Avenor. Is there something special around that? <laughs> yeah, well, it's a loose derivative of the Latin to hunt or to pursue, actually. Pete, uh, my business partner, he uh, and one of his key skills is finding new sites and finding new projects and together us being able to convert them and, and bring them in. And so when we were first kicking off, we actually had this deal, this Chinese investor was coming out uh, and, and he was, we were meeting with him on the on the Saturday and we thought, oh, we don't have any business cards. We don't even have a name. So we thought we quickly whipped it up and um, and printed out some business cards and, and went to the meeting with some branding and, and off, we, off we went. And I suppose it stuck. So, <laughs> so that's how we landed it. And um, what, what do you reckon is the most difficult business decision that you've had to make in your business or in business well, well, you know what? I think the funniest, the funniest thing is the hardest one was to start, actually, I reckon. Even though I always knew it would come, the time would come and that I would, I wanted to do it, actually then saying, yep, yeah, let's, let's go and, and commit and take that risk. And then after that, every day is, is a challenge, but it's um, fulfilling and uh, a lot of the decisions that you have to make day to day are, are part of a bigger picture. So it's um, take, yeah, a bit easier. And what about the best piece of advice is that you've ever been given? Well, I suppose it's related to that, actually. I had, when I was at Leighton Properties, there was a, and I was trying to make the decision about whether or not to, to kick off. And I was chatting with this guy who was 20 years my senior. And he says, and I was saying, oh, should I do it? Should I start? Should I, whatever. And he says, if you're going to do it, just do it now. If, if it's going to happen, uh, if you're thinking that in the back of your head, then rip into it now and start making the mistakes and start getting into it because there won't be any difference between you doing it now or you're doing it in 10 or 20 or 30 years. So may as well rip in. And, and then that's I took that quite literally and I think in the weeks following, started ripping into it. And so how would you how do you describe yourself now? Are you a, a developer, a financier? No, well, well, we're a financier. We're we're a development firm, and so we development firm that provides advisory and management services and um, partners on development and investment uh, on a opportunistic basis. Yeah. And then tell me, what's your top tip for developers out there who might be looking to take their business to the next level? Ah, well, I suppose it, it depends from what level to what level, but um, I think two would be starting and perfection are rarely simultaneous. I think it's a, a long journey to, the, to, to get it going and having an appreciation for that pathway and then working over a, a long period of time to reach that is the way to go. Um, that's, that's for sure. And if you could go back and just change one thing about what's happened since you started your new business what do you reckon it would be oh that's a that's a, a tough one i think i'd say be patient i don't know if i'd change change too much but i think i'd, I'd tell my, i'd tell myself that it will come you'll get there keep on persisting 
Is that because you just had unrealistic expectations about how things quickly things oh, would come I just together? Can't do a, I just can't do it fast enough. That's that's all. <laughs> we yeah, we we definitely have um, have a big vision. So we're and I, I still need, I probably need to tell myself that still even today. I I would say say it to myself, but I don't know if I'll take that advice. So I'm, <laughs> I'm definitely um, keen to keep keep pushing forward uh, at a rate of knots. That's for sure. Well, it's absolutely true that things just do not happen fast enough in property yeah. developing. Yeah. Yeah, you certainly don't feel alone there. I feel like that quite often myself. James, where can people find out more about you or about Avenor if they're interested? Uh, well, our website, avenor.com.au, is definitely a good good place to jump to. Otherwise, on our LinkedIn's, um, our LinkedIn page and, and my personal one is is a good place to start and, and can reach out and happy, happy, happy for a chat and um, yeah, would welcome, would welcome it. So yeah. And so Avenor is A V E N O R. Yeah, that's the one. All right. Well, people can go to avenor.com.au. Yep, that's the one to find out more. And James, thanks so much for being on the Property Developer Podcast. Is there any final comments you had before we bid you farewell? No, excellent. Thanks so much for having me. It's been a pleasure and uh, yeah, look forward to uh, catching up again. Always awesome to talk property developing and thanks for sharing your insights and lessons learned and I'm wishing you all the best for your North Sydney project and look forward to seeing some photos as it starts coming out of the ground. That's it. Very welcome. Thank you very much. All right. See you later, James. Okay. See you then. Bye. Okay. There you go. I hope you enjoyed that chat with James. It just goes to show that it doesn't matter what size project you're working on, many of the challenges and issues are the same. Here's a couple of things I took away from my conversation. 1. Expect challenges no matter the size of the development project. It seems that it doesn't matter what size project you work on, whether it is a 45-storey tower or a 4-unit townhouse development, you can expect to face challenges getting a planning permit. Many issues seem to be universal like dealing with mercurial councils, local objectors, and the shifting sands of property markets. 2. Identify and manage your risk One comment that James made is that it doesn't matter whether it is a large or small project, there are going to be risks that you need to identify and be ready to manage. So are you taking steps to identify the risks in your project and considering how you might deal with them? Okay, if you enjoyed that chat with James, then you might want to go back and take a listen to episode 45, where I speak with my old mentor, Troy Harris, and discuss how he went from being a toy shop owner to a property developer. Troy had this to say about what things are like when markets are running hot. It's funny, a lot of people will say when the market's hot, oh, gee, must be a great time to be a developer. It's actually the opposite because while the prices might be moving up on what you're selling, they're moving up extraordinarily on what you're buying. There's a lot of great ideas in that conversation, so be sure to have a listen to episode 45. Okay, don't forget, if you are interested in learning how to develop property, then email me about the Property Developing Mentoring Program that is available to help you get started. There's nothing like a guiding hand to show you the best way when you're starting out. So email justin at propertydeveloperpodcast.com and I'll send you some further information. You can also catch me on Insta and Facebook for all my latest project pics and videos, industry news, and other fun things. And don't forget, you can also post a comment on iTunes if you are enjoying the show. 
And of course, all the past episodes of the show can be found at www.propertydeveloperpodcast.com. So until next time, may you embrace the challenges that come with your projects. You've been listening to the Property Developer Podcast. Tune in next time for more tips, ideas and inspiration to take your developing to the next level. For more developing love, make sure to visit propertydeveloperpodcast.com.